Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Welcome to another episode of Toby Talks 2 with me, Toby Moody. Today I'm speaking to Wayne Gardner, the 1987 500cc motorcycle world champion, hero of Australia, one of the most gritty riders of the time who rode with huge injuries with nothing less than 100% adrenaline to get him through. Just go and Google Wayne Gardner Highside to see what he went through and what we'll touch on over the next hour. He's not only one on two wheels, but four as well. The story how that happened is quite something too, but for me, it's being able to hear about what Agumasan was like in the early days of HRC, a manager who got stuff done. Wherever you are in the world, travelling, walking, running, on the way to work or just chilling, I hope you enjoy my chat with WG. Thank you for joining us today, Wayne. Where in the world are you right now? Well, at present, um, I'm in Cannes in uh, the south of France. Um, I live in Monaco. Um, but this is my kind of weekender down here. So um, we're the start of the holidays and here I am. Enjoying life at the moment? It's pretty good? Yes. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm 63 years old and, um, and my friend here is a similar age and we've been talking about it and we kind of think that once you get to 60 or 60 plus, it's time to retire and hang your boots up and enjoy life and enjoy the success or enjoy the the lifestyle that you've worked hard for so yes enjoying it well you've had some success to say the least and we'll, we'll touch on that as we progress uh straight into motorcycle grand prix if i could you were a honda man through and through much as mcdoan was after your time on the grid um you were very much there as the nsr 500 was in its ascendancy mm. Did you realise that at the time as you were in your ascendancy as well? Um, yeah, look, I thought at the time when I joined Honda, I thought it was this superior company that knew everything, you know, and they had the solutions for all. Uh, Honda's a very, very big company and they obviously, you know, got a lot of people and a lot of uh, good people too. But, however, at that time of racing, I was a little bit surprised that, you know, the bikes weren't more superior. And and one of the difficulties I found in trying to talk to the engineers and they were trying to understand it, they didn't have a true understanding of the geometry of the bikes. And it went on for many years and it started to show its head up when I was in the, in the 80s, um, you know, 86, 85, 86, um, where we had steering geometry problems and the bike wouldn't turn and they kept pointing to, you know, the, the one-piece crankshaft, the four-cylinder 90-degree firing crankshaft. So uh, 
it was only when we found out, when we seen Suzuki bikes of what they were doing, they were like building um, the RGs were a bit like a motocross bike on tar with the engine very high and a big steep swinging arm. And I then got I got some photos of their bikes or the Japanese come and got some photos of the Suzuki and started to understand and, and I showed them the difference and they went, wow, you know. Um, oh, I said, well, let's have a look at this. And Mr. Guma came into this picture and, uh, and they didn't want to and I said, well, we'll go and Get, the, get some photos and have a look at, blow it up into this full scale and put up ours on top and have a look. What's the difference? And they went, okay. So they did and they came back and said, ooh, big difference, Wayne Son, you know. And I went, well, why? And our oh, engine's very high. Uh, we always think engine must be low, you know, like low severant gravity like a Formula 1 car. And I said, well, and the caster angle was out, we're like 21 degrees or something in the fork angle. And they went, oh, here's, theirs is 24 degrees. And I said, well, no wonder their bike is so much better on braking. So then I convinced them to go on. We, we sacrificed one of my chassis in, uh, well, two things happened. In, in 86, uh, I, was, um, I was racing. Freddie had stopped the championship because he had an injury, an eye or wrist or something. And, um, and Honda said, oh, you have to win the title. So this was in 87, and I went, wow, this is going to be hard. So then um, uh, I still never turned all year, but then I kind of had to try and develop the bike myself, which was difficult. And then the following year, in 88, they said, oh, we've got a new bike this year. Um, I won't manage to win the championship in 87. And then it's 88, they brought a new one, and we kept riding. I kept riding it around saying, this thing's faster. Yeah, it's in a straight line, but it doesn't go in corners. And... And we kept asking the engineers, and it took them six months to finally tell us that they'd lowered the engine 25 millimetre or 30 millimetre lower in the bike because this guy came from the Formula One arena, from the four wheels. So that's why we were struggling all the time. So then we went out testing in the middle break of the year where I had no results up to the middle of 88. And then we pushed the lifted the bike up uh, like about 30 mil, 25 or 30 mil massive. Uh, on as much as we could on the fork. Yeah, massive. Thought it'll – and just took a stab in the dark to see what happened and it turned into – I was winning again straight away. I, If you look in 88, I started – I won four races or five races in a row. Yeah, three, four, whatever. And I had a chance of catching up Eddie and all of a sudden that's when you – and then I was – and then when it really mattered, I'd won the – first three or four of that year and then we went to uh Paul Ricard and I had a two second lean and was going to win and and two or three corners from the end the engine seized and um a bolt came off the end of the crank and I lost the championship there there so but what it did give us is an indication that we're thinking incorrectly so that's when we started looking around and um connecting the dots and started to get the engine up higher and the rear swinging arm at a certain degree and the forks out and, and then it kind of took off. So uh, I thought I was with the, with the power of Honda, but um, they just had the wrong the wrong understanding of what, what it was about. And it wasn't to that point since then. I think Honda's future changed at that point, including, you know, the race bikes, the road bikes and everything else that happened. So uh, so I, I, I believe that I was a, a fundamental point, a point and a person in the relationship with Honda. 
Totally, totally. Uh, you mentioned already uh, Aguma San. He, he essentially was the, the warlord, if I could use that expression, over the, yeah. the top of HRC, just as you got there. I mean, I never met him. He was before my time, but I've read a lot about him. What was it like working with him? <laughs> well, was, even though he's, he's, he's Japanese and he's serious, um, he's not serious too, you know. He was always joking. Um, he's, his big delight these days is... Um, is uh, fighter, old fighter Spitfires and planes. And uh, he was always talking about, you know, having the fighting spirit and you need to fight with this and like the kamikaze pilots. And so everything is related to aeroplanes and going fast and trying your best and never giving up, you know, and um, falling on your sword sometimes. And uh, uh, he was always doing funny things, uh, joking a lot. Um, he became... Even though he was my my boss, uh, he became a good friend, you know. And I could go to him and with any dramas or any issues and and talk to him and, and get the message across. Where a lot of the other personnel and in in the company was a bit difficult, you know, because you've got the the different cultures. But however, he was very um, let's say he was very Australianized, I suppose. You know, hanging around me and. Uh, we became good friends. We'd go out and have lunch, lunches and dinners and, and, and party a bit. And, you know, he was, he'd always be slapping me on the back and, Wayne son, what about this? Oh, you can do, you can do. So it was, uh, it was a special relationship and I, I admired him and looked up to him. And, and even at the end of my career, um, he promised me to give me my Grand Prix bike, So in which he, he was against all rules at that time. Um, he managed to convince it and tell them, and they sent me my bike, so which is good, which is in Australia. Is it true that he came in after a qualifying session one day and said, Wayne sound necessary faster? Yeah. Yes, always. Um, there was either necessary faster or not enough or you can do better. Um, it's like even, even when um, I won my last eight-hour race, I think it was um, – I think it was 92 was my last uh, Suzuka 8-hour race. I think I won with Mick there. And I came in and um, we'd won and it was a really hard race. Uh, and, uh, and I said, oh, I said, oh, that's my last one, um, Agumasan. He goes, nah, it's not. No, so I said, no, I'm going to retire. I said, that's enough. I'm, I'm tired of this. And I, I'd had fractures. You know, I broke my leg at Suzuka that earlier that year. And um, I was kind of just, you know, through injuries and having two, you know, broken legs over about the span of three or four years, I just had enough of it, you know, and I just wanted to sort of walk away in one piece and and not break any more legs before I'm, I'm short enough as it is, let alone losing any more height. <laughs> and uh, I told him, I said, look, this is my last race. He goes, oh, I see, you just want more money. <laughs> and I go... No, I don't want more money. This is directly after the race at the, the party, the, the the winning party at Suzuka Circuit. And I said, no, no, no. I said, uh, I'm going back to to stop end of this year. Yeah, this is my final year. And he goes, no, nah, you're not. No, you're not. You just want more money. Okay, how much do you want? You know, it was like it was that. And so I said, no, no, no I'm serious. No, I, I'm not coming back. He goes, no, nah, you will, you will. How much? Tell me how much you want and the money. <laughs> so, and he was always making a joke of stuff. So yeah, it was. He was always pushing me, but doing it in a in a friendly way. And he always thought that you know some things I did at Suzuka and the eight hour races were 
not even human, you know, some of the stuff that I did in those races. So uh, and when I rode five hours on the limit every lap for five hours out of eight hours when I had a Tokener was my partner and he was like two seconds or three seconds a lap slower and I managed to still win, you know. So um, and I was, I don't know, you know, how I did it. I, had to, I was sick for two weeks after the event, so dehydrated from it, you know. But anyway, um, yeah, he was the one, a guy that would slap you on the back and tell you to get out and do it again and do it better, you know. And uh, and I said, oh, I come in complaining about something. He goes, listen, you get paid, don't you? And he said, is this a job? Yes. Well, we pay you. Well, then go out and do it. Stop your complaining, you know. So get on your bike and go. It was kind of funny, you know. I, I, as I, you say, as you say, a very Australian Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he no, must have been serious when he needed to because – at the end of the day, the buck stopped with him with HRC. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I know, if we had problems, I'd go to him. If we had the good times, I'd go to him. So he was very much the the link between cultures, I suppose. And um, and and he was he's critical sometimes. But you know what? I prefer people that are direct and to the point. I don't like to beat around the bush. I don't like people that you know, say yes to you and behind your back they stab you in the back. I hate that, you know. I'd rather, I'd, face, I'd like to face the music, good or bad, you know, and, and get on with it. And if it's not good enough, okay, I'll figure out another way to do it better. So, but, but that's an honest way of doing it. And he was great. Two strokes. I mean, the animals that they were, you know, 130 kilos, 180 horsepower, the proverbial light switches, were they just the worst, angriest bull at the, at the rodeo? Uh, yeah, they were pretty savage. Um, obviously, it's early engineering, and uh, the, but they were they were they were good. They were exciting. You know what I mean? They were savage, yes, and they were difficult to ride. And and there was no electronics. There was no traction control. There was no no safety aids. Uh, our equipment was pretty bad as well. And at that point, in the early stages of manufacturing of leathers and boots and gloves and helmet, um, but. But they were exciting. They were always good to ride. And every time I'd read, they were hard to ride um, because there was a fine line. It's just that slight millimetre, not even a millimetre, less than a millimetre twist on the throttle and your your legs and boots up in the air and you're flying through the air and you're just praying you're not going to hit the fence or get hit by another rider or something like that. Uh, It was shocking. Um, It was a bit like being hit by a train, you know. It's hard. However... However, um, when we, then when we go and ride four strokes like the Suzuka RA race and, and super bikes and things like that, it was, it was really easy. It, you could ride them harder and faster. Um, it's a bit like whenever us guys would go and ride the eight-hour race, we'd be like three seconds faster than the rest of the riders because it was just so easy to ride a four-stroke. And it had no traction control and stuff then. Uh, and I remember doing lots of testing with them with the the v, uh, uh, RVF RVF 750, and it was just like you're holding on the throttle all the time, and you just carry more speed, and it just it was easy. And and then and that's where you see the big gap between the endurance riders, and you see, and between the front riders, like a Dylan myself or or Schwanzers or whatever. So it, I, I found riding four strokes. In, in a percentage level, I found them 60, 65% easier than riding a two-stroke. 
Um, and even now, they've got 65% easier, plus they've got electronics. Hmm. Now, so I'm not saying that they're really, really easy to ride, but they're just, they're heavier, yes, but they've got a lot more power now because they're 1,000 cc. But the point to this is that four-stroke is, is a more softer and more gentle opening of the throttle. So you'd never had that sharpness where you threw yourself into the weeds or into the wall or into another rider's uh, path, you know. So um, I respect the guys, and I know they're all very, very good riders now, all on these bikes, but but my memory of those days was it was 65% easier to ride than a two-stroke. No, it's you know? a different animal. So where does that equate to? I don't know, you know. I don't, I'm not saying the riders are bad these days. I'm just saying... That there's a and you can ask you can you can ask Mick you can ask Swans any of those guys and I'll bet they say exactly the same as me that was sixty to seventy percent easier to ride and it was just like I had to go there to Suzuka and break lap records lap after lap after lap just because it was easy easier you know so two strokes were animals they were difficult to ride and we got hurt a lot but however in saying this you know if we crashed any more than six or eight times a year for me six times wasn't was 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 the most i could do in a year because you didn't have very good equipment you didn't the bikes were hard to ride and you're going to get hurt so and you had a bigger accident you were going to have a high side correct and you're going to have a high side exactly right it's rarely you lose the front on them it was always wow and it just snaps and throws you over the bar and you can't catch them um, so now these days um, they've got traction control and all these gizmos to make them squat, move up, down, round, whatever it is, and um, and they're still complaining that they're too fast and too powerful. So I don't really kind of understand that a little bit, you know. So anyway, I'm not I'm not a racer these days. I can sit back and say this, and um, but these guys, I'm sure they're still riding them as hard as they can, you know. But of course, they but are. I think with yeah. certain I think to a certain extent. They're easier to ride than what the warfare that we went through, you know. Mm. Good expression, warfare. Tell me, you've got that picture of you rup, on the wall somewhere. Uh, I've got the I've got the scar on my wrist here to show you, and I've got that picture. Yes, I have it in. Uh, yeah, I have got that. Of course, I have it, and I have it in my phone. There's about twenty of them, and that that picture at I can tell you that was at um, that was at Czechoslovakian Grand Prix. And it was the second last corner, and I was riding with Kanemoto, so that would have been uh, 92, was it? 91, 92. And um, that was, I would, I'd already been fastest. Rainy was there, and uh, I was like significantly quicker than the rest of them in practice. And that was going into qualifying, and I came in there into that top of the corner, and I knew I was on a quick lap. It was like I was like, two or three seconds a lap faster. And I, a Honda had on the rear wheel a carbon disc. And as I went into the turn, I squeezed the rear brake a little bit more. And as I turned in, it heated up and grip, grabbed as carbon does. And it just pitched me over the handlebars. I didn't even know what happened. And I landed uh, somewhere rather on my hand and, and I, I broke my scaphoid. Um, and then they obviously had to go to the ambulance and they x-rayed me and Dr. Costa was there then and he had a look and he said, oh, you've got a broken scaphoid. And, and I said, oh, that's bad news. I said, he said, oh, you can't race. And I said, well, can't I? 
And he goes, well, you want to race? I went, well, how bad is it? Oh, it's broken. You have to get it fixed. And I said, but if you want to race, Wayne son, okay, let's go, you know? And I said, okay, let's try. So I went out and practiced and it wasn't too bad. It was painful. And I had lots of injections and I went into the race and uh, Rainy won. And I had obviously a very sore wrist, but I finished second that day and the Grand Prix the next day. And then Dr. Costa dragged me in after the race and he said, uh, okay, uh, you've had your race. Um, we'll put, let's put a cast on it and fix it before it's, uh, there's a problem. And I said, well, there's another race next week, in two weeks, sorry, in Australia. It's Phillip Island. I said, is there a chance we can just leave it open and then I go and try a race and then fix it after that? And he goes, oh, I wouldn't do it if I was you. And I went, well, come on, let me. You know, he goes, okay. So we went out there and they gave me lots of injections and, uh, and I ent- went into the, into the race thinking uh, I can't do this and it's going to be impossible. But and I seen Mick leading the race and uh, I was fading. I went back, dropped back three or four seconds behind and my wrist was killing me and my fingers were numb from the swelling. And I was going down the straight at Phillip Island at 330 out, holding the throttle with stretching my fingers and then, and then I could see Mick drifting away, and I went, "Come on, you can do this. I can't. I can't stop now because I was going to pull in." And uh, and I went, "No, nah, come on, you can do this. Come on, let's try it out. Five laps. See, see what happens." So I'm talking to myself, and then I just put my head down. And I started catching him, and pulled him in. And with about three laps to the go, I said, oh, "I'm going to try and win this." And um, and I caught up and passed Mick and. The fairing was broken too at that point. Uh, is the belly pan was dropped down and it was trying to steer off towards the grass all the time. And I'm trying to keep it in a straight line, so I'm riding it down the straight, crossed up with a with exercise on my fingers, and um, and went on to win by about half a second over Mick. <laughs> I don't know how the hell I did it. Uh, it was just one of those out of body experiences, you know, that you have. And I went way beyond the pain barrier that you can ever expect. And uh, but I knew that was coming, and then I was I kept talking to myself during the race, deal with the pain after, deal with the pain after, deal with the pain after, and to because I've always been told if you allocate a time and a place, you push it back to then. You know what I mean? So so I I had that mindset to finish it, and, and I went on to win. And Doctor Costa said, "How he come up and hugged me up on the podium? And he goes, How did you do that? How how did you do that?" I said. I have no idea. I said it was this out-of-body experience and it was an amazing experience and uh, it was probably probably one of that, that without a doubt, that and Suzuki Dow race or a couple of those races were the most difficult races of my life. Giving me goosebumps uh, hearing it from your point of view. I've seen the videos, yeah. I've seen the TV yeah. coverage, but that's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, you, you, you won the championship in 87. You were beyond a national hero. What was it like being a national hero, not just a motorcycle racing champion? There's two differences there. Yeah, at the time, I had a media guy in Australia, Nick Harkerink. Um I'm not sure if you can remember him. And uh, he was he was doing all the media in Australia for me because he's from the local newspaper in Wollongong where I come from, and I engaged him and um, to he works for them but to give me time to and they said yeah no problem as long as we can get all the information first so that was fine uh, and so Nick kept ringing me and telling me he said you're not going to believe 
what's happening. He said, you winning races and you representing Australia and, you know, having a chance of winning the championship in 87. And he said, you cannot believe. And at that time, there was no mobile phones. So I had to, after the race, I had to have a bag of coins and I'd have to, and I had the big motorhome then and Adri was driving it. And I'd have to say, oh, look, there's a phone box. And I have to stop. And I drag a big bag of coins across here, putting the coins in, trying to send Australia, uh, the, the media, tell Nick, and then he goes and writes the stories and so on. But uh, And that happened at every race, his big bag of coins. And um, he, he kept telling me, you're not going to believe what's happening. This is incredible. He said, this, the following you've got in this country, it's a, there's, this, there's this big wave that's building. And, of course, then I went on to become world champion in Brazil um, in Guyana, and uh, Nick, Nick Nick was there, and then I was. He said, "Oh, you're not going to believe now." He said, "Everyone's waiting for you to come home." And when I and then booked the flight to come home, there was a there was a media scrum, and there was thousands of people, and it was and at the airport, and they had to take me to a special room and doing the interviews with the ABC and Channel Nine, Channel Ten, et cetera, et cetera, and. Um, and then I had to get in the into the uh, convertible car with Donna, and then we drove down from the airport all the way along the the highway, and then down down through Bulleye Pass, which is down into Wollongong, and there was just people lined at the airport side of the airport, and all the way along the roads waving, and uh, it was an unbelievable experience. I never thought a sportsman would ever get that sort of you know, many accolades as that. And it was, uh, and then they drove into Wollongong and then Wollongong, um, my hometown where I come from, which is the population is around about 250,000 or something. And uh, it's a steel, you're probably aware it's a steelworks style city and, um, you know, they, and they were just, I had to go into the, to the outside stadium and there's all thousands and thousands, like 10,000 people there. Uh, and then the Lord Mayor, uh, Autumn Arkell at the time, he came out and presented me with the key to the city. It's about this big. And uh, and some, uh, oh, he gave me a lot of things, you know, for the represent because they thanked me for representing Wollongong around the world and it's got, it's become famous and, you know, you come from here and et cetera. So, all these things um, came off the back of, you know, a, a kid's dream more than anything else. And I'm not sure if you've seen my movie, The Wayne, but it's a, it's a very good movie. It rates four and a half stars and it just portrays that whole story very, very well in an, an hour, 40 minutes doco, you know. So, uh, but I would never have envisaged any of that. One thing just led to another, led to another, led to another, and, and here I am. You had your own advert. Was it a Swan Lager advert or something or other, wasn't it? Yes, yes, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, uh, there was a TV advert. with uh, they, had, they had, it was Swan Beer. And the logo went, if you look up on YouTube, it's there. And it's uh, this Swan, Swan Beer. This Swan's made for you when you're drinking beer. And it was owned by Alan Bonds. You probably know yeah, the name. Yeah, Alan Bond, yeah. Alan Bonds, his America's Cup. And he had Greg Norman, myself. Uh, oh, he had oh, he had a whole four celebrities, and they flew a crew over from Australia to the south of France, here, Villefranche, just up the road. And we filmed uh, two or three days the TV commercial in a boat in the port, 
down there and it looked like we were in a big boat and uh, it was a big boat actually, but it looked like it was my boat and uh, pretending to be my boat, I wished. <laughs> and they shipped over a pallet full of beer and everyone's spraying everywhere and this one's made the cameras and it was great. It was a, it was a really great moment. And um, as I said, you can, you can look it up on, on YouTube and see it. And it's funny. It's a great commercial. And, and then Swan Beer became the promoter and the sponsor of the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, coincidentally, and it wasn't planned, and uh, and I I had a lot to do with the Australian GP being put together um, with Bob Barnard because mm. you, you essentially made that happen because you'd won the championship a couple of years earlier, and then in '89 you were there, so that's right. That was that was just me. Who did you get on best with in the paddock during those 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 peak years? Uh, riders, you mean, or teams, or, or, or anybody. Or, uh, well, the riders I got on well, um, Didier de Rodriguez, who was a good friend of mine. In fact, I'm seeing him tomorrow. He's, he's down at Saint-Tropez um, and his, and his uh, missus, his, his wife. Um, there was, um, oh, look, there was all the Honda people. Um, uh, Roger Burnett, um, Christian Sauron, um, yeah, Didier. I, 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 I got on well with with. Kenny, Kenny Roberts. Uh, I get on well with Kenny Jr. Um, he was later. Um, Eddie, Eddie, I got on well with um, on the track. Obviously, we were we were like cats and dogs, you know. Um, but respect, you know, respect to Eddie, uh, Kevin Schwantz. I get on well with him. I, I was at Goodwood with him, you know, last week and travelled back with him, and we got on really good. He goes, "When you come in Texas to come and stay," I said, oh, "Yeah, I'll come. I'll come over soon." So I got on generally with everybody. Obviously, when you're competing against them, it's a little difficult, you know, because we're yeah, we're all we're all want the same trophy, don't we? You know, and so we're all paid to do the job, and we're all paid to give it our best shot. So, so yeah, look, I generally got on with everybody pretty good. Um, I liked having you know, a beer or two um, over the weekend at my motorhome or I go over to Kenny's or Eddie's or uh, I got on with everybody reasonably good. Yeah, pretty good. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You took that title in 87. You had JB, Jerry Burgess, as your chief engineer alongside you. Was that HRC just putting two Aussies together? Was it oh, that the, there's no loss of translation if we put Wayne Gardner with somebody else? Or was there another reason why it came about that you two were a duo to take that title? 
Uh, no, it wasn't my doing. I had no, I didn't even know too much about JB, you know. So, um, um, no, I think JB was working with Irv Kanemoto, wasn't he? So, uh, and little George on with Freddie. And when I came along, they had to split the team up. Um, and I guess that was a goomer. That was a goomer that was doing all that. So he could see, obviously, the friendship amongst the paddock um, and mechanics. And I'm normally really friendly with all mechanics. I, enjoy, I, I, I learned that from the British days that, you know, you go out and you, you joke with them, you go out and have a beer with them, you have barbecues with them, and you're building that bond, bond with the team. And so Freddie was never like that. He was very clinical and, he, you know, he was with Irv, yes, but the rest of the team, he didn't really hang around too much. He was different personalities here, you know. Um, but I, I enjoyed the personal contact and, and the relationship. Um, but so Jerry was put, put with me um, via the Japanese, via um, Aguma, son, and the rest of the staff. They built, they built that, and um, JB and I got on really good. At first I thought, oh, they're just palming off one of these old mechanics, but if anything, it was a blessing because the relationship between us is, was a better understanding because we're two Aussies, you know? Yeah, straight talking, straight talking. Um, Absolutely. Just quickly, if I could go back to the eight-hour. Was that an edict from HRC, Wayne San, you must ride eight-hour? Uh, yes. Yes, um, I didn't want to, but you know, you look back at my history. Uh, I first went there in 1981 on the Morawaki, and I went there and uh, I've been racing in the UK. You're probably aware with the Morawaki, the superbike, and everything. Yep. And then yep. they dragged me out there during '81 a couple of times. I was supposed to ride at the Isle of Man. I went over there to race the big superbike, the, the sit-up and beg bike. Um, but at the last minute, Mamora was worried about me riding around the Isle of Man. Um, I was just only after the money. and um, uh, But I'm glad he did because I went over there and got, got totally pissed with Roger Marshall, went over there to learn the track, and we went out and <laughs> we spent a week out there going around, around the track all, all day, but then we were down the pub every night getting pissed up and having a lot of fun, you know. So it was uh, – we've got many, many stories about that. And um, anyway, at the last minute, um, I got dragged across to to uh, Japan to race the superbike and I, I won those too, you know, And when I first came over there. And then that led me to joining Honda and then I was in Honda. Then they'd already seen that I, – I rode an 81 in the Morawaki as well in the eight-hour race. And I put it on pole position. I don't know if you even knew that. I went out there and against Crosby was the man on Suzuki. Uh, and he was like two seconds faster than everybody. And Morawaki built a Formula One bike, what he called Formula One. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and rode it. And it's in the museum out there now. And I rode it and put it on pole position by about one second faster than Crosso. And um, because Mamoru was sending me out on old tyres, riding harder and harder and harder. And at the right time, he pulled me in, he put new tyres in, go. And uh, I went out and put a, a lap time together that was saved for many, many, many years. And um, everyone at Honda, th at, I was on it, it was a Kawasaki engine, uh, has said it was bigger than 1,000cc, but it wasn't. It was a, a legal, legal engine, and just because I – thrashed him and Barry Simmons keeps reminding me every time I see him, oh, you were using an oversized engine to get pole position at 
at Suzuka. And I said, I wasn't. I'm really not. It's not. He goes, yeah, you was. He couldn't believe it because I was that quick on that bike. And, of course, that set the that set the motive for Honda wanting me. And then Honda Britain came to me. Barry Soon Simmons came to me and, and Yamaha and, and Suzuki came to me when I went over to watch my first Grand Prix at Spa in 81. And they said, oh, well, what are you doing next year? And I went, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know, you know, and then – and then Suzuki seen Honda talking to me and then Yamaha seen Suzuki talking to me and I had three offers in one day. And so, yeah, it kind of took off from there. So I joined Honda in 82 and I stayed with Honda UK for many years under Barry Simmons' guidance. And Honda Britain and Barry were great. They were really great. I had my moments with Barry, um, but I told him what I thought in the end. And Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I, but I was honest, and uh, and I also told him what the team were thinking, and uh, and he, I thought I was going to get the sack or kicked out, and he come to me and he goes, I appreciate your honesty. I didn't know I was like that, and um, let's let's change it and let's fix it up, mm. and, and I changed him and I changed myself out of that. So, you know, these racing um, team situations always good for your personality is straightening your characters out or it's, it's always a good character reference for you, you know? So, uh, so Barry become a really good mate of mine now and he's still a, a good friend, Barry Simmons. So he, he looked after me and um, pushed me in the right way. And I knew that every time he went in to fight for me in some meeting with Honda, he was doing the right thing. And, and all due to respect of me speaking my mind and telling him what I think and what the other team were thinking. So he went, Oh, I'm shocked. Thank you. And, and it fixed him forever. So, mm-hmm. so it, it worked out good. Worked out good. Uh, Mick arrived in Grand Prix in 89. Did you see then quite quickly that he was, you know, going to be a world champion? Well, Honda came to me initially. Uh, I think I was in Brazil and I'd won or something like that. And he said, oh, Wensome, we have to ask you something. I went, yeah. And he goes, "Um, you know a guy called Mick Doohan? I said, oh, I've heard of him in Australia. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, um, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know too much, but let me go and have a look. Uh, and I did, and, and people I asked and asked around, and I come back and I said, well, he sounds pretty good. Oh, we want to, what do you think if we, what do we do with him? And I said, well, I think he's got the chance of becoming a champion, yes. Um, he's, he's good, he's talented. Um, and they said, oh, okay, well, can you start the process? Uh, so they said, you call him up and speak to them and you give us and, and introduce us to him and then we'll then go in and talk to him from there. And I went, okay. So I rang Mick, um, even though he's never told this, but it's true and I'm happy to explain it. Um, I rang Mick and I said, oh, it's Wayne Gardner here. And and then he's, oh, I was a big fan of yours and I had your poster on the wall and all that. So it was very nice and very good. And I just said, look, uh, you've been doing really well. You've caught the attention of Honda, HRC. Uh, I'm not sure what your plans are, but would you like to have a test on a bike, on an NSR, um, one of our bikes? And he goes, oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, look, Honda want to talk to you. Um, they Maybe if you're interested, come in for a test and they'll get you there or fix it all up. And and he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to him. Thank you. Thank you for calling. So that's how it started, um, our relationship. And uh, by, by just 
calling him and asking him would he like to would he like to come and um, talk to Honda and have a ride on the bikes and they'll go from there see what they think and so yeah that's where it is so there's been as you're probably aware there's been good and bad and all that relationship but uh, I respect him he's he's done and had an amazing career and um, I respect him for it. You mentioned the uh, the Sunday night bar conversation where you said you were going to retire but you went from bikes to cars how did that come about? Well, uh, Toby, I I retired from bikes and I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I went back to Australia and and I thought, well, what do I do? <laughs> and then a friend of mine rang up and said, uh, who's in the car racing, um, a guy called Graham Moore, and said, uh, I live locally. Um, I was living in uh, Manly then. And he just said, would you uh, be interested in doing a car race? And I went, oh, that would be a bit of fun. Why not? <laughs> and and so, oh, but, but prior to that, when I when I went home before this this invite came, uh, I was what do I do? To, oh, I'll go down the beach and um, do nothing. And uh, I bought some beers and I sat on the beach drinking beer and uh, thinking I'm in retirement mode. I was 32 years of age, and I thought, what am I going to do in my life? So I start ringing everybody up, going, "Hey, come and join me for a beer on the beach." They said, "We can't. We're working." I said, everybody's working? Yes, we're all working. I went, oh, this is really bad because i got no one to play with. So I went, well, I don't like drinking beer all day and sitting in the sun anyway with my, with my fair skin. So I went, well, listen, I'm going to go and do something. And then Graham Moore calls me and says, um, hey, WG, he goes, uh, are you interested in, in something to do? And I went, yeah. He goes, you want to come and drive a touring car? And I went, oh, yeah. He said, oh, I've got a friend who's got a Honda NSX. Um, his name's Ross Palmer, and um, he's interested to see if you want to test a car and see how you go and do a race at Bathurst. And I went, oh, that sounds interesting. Why not? So I went up and tested his NSX. Um, it was a it was a like a sports car class it was in, and um, yeah, I was fast and I enjoyed cars a lot. And and I started to see that the principle of riding a bike and riding a, and, and driving a car is nearly the same. Um, bar, you know, bar that's a lot safer in a car than on a bike. And I went, yeah, and I went fast. And they went, wow, wow, we'd like, you're quick. And um, we'd like to do a race. You want to do it? Yeah, okay. So I went up there to Bathurst and I qualified, although I crashed in qualifying, and put the car up on top of the wall because I'd put a back wheel onto the dirt on Exeton Skyline, which is uh, dangerous. And um, But I didn't get hurt. And they the car was really trash, but they managed to fix it and pull it all straight. And, and I went out and raced, and we finished third overall in the in our but first in our class, you know. So um, that was a great start. And then uh, HRT, the Holden Racing Team, contacted me and seen seen me doing so well, and said, "Oh, we'd like to uh, Tom Walkinshaw and um, a guy called John Crennan." from Holden, Holding Australia, contacted me and said, oh, would you like to tell, we've seen you do it really well at Bathurst uh, and you've got a good draw card name and um, and you can wheel a car around pretty good. You want to test a HRC tour, uh, HRT touring car? And I went, oh, yeah, why not? So I went down and tested that and I broke the late record in it and they went, oh, we want to sign you up. And I went, oh, okay, that sounds like fun. I'm going to do that this year. You know, it was kind of like evolved into it like that. 
And then it was never a, I'm going to be a John Surtees, I'm going to be a Johnny Chicotto. You were just sat on the beach on the phone. Yes, correct. (laughs) I I was just didn't want to sit on the beach drinking beer all day. I had to do something. So, yes, correct. That's how it all began. And then I went and set the lap, got, I went and tested and beaten lap records. And then they put me in the car. And then I went to Bathurst and I finished third and my first Bathurst uh, on the podium. And, uh, and then they were running short of sponsorship at that time, that year. And um, I had a contract with them for one year, uh, uh, for one year, because this was my first year. And, um, but they had holding contact me. I said, oh, I want to go testing more. I need more time in the car to understand the suspension and things. And even though I was performing well, and they go, no, you're fast enough. I said, no, I want to get better, you know. And the only way I'm going to do that is the testing. Well, we've got no budget. If you can get a sponsor, we'll go. We'll get. We'll go uh, and we'll go on testing. And I went. Oh, okay. Well, I have a personal sponsorship deal with Coca Cola. Would you like me to go and talk to them? They went yes. So I went and talked to Coca Cola, and then this is a really, really interesting story. And they said. Dean Wills was the chairman, and he's a good friend of mine and, and a petrol head. And, uh, and I said, oh, would you be interested in aligning yourselves, the brand Coca-Cola, with touring cars? Oh, I love, I love cars, touring cars, you know. So I, I then went back to Holden and I said, oh, um, I've got a sponsor for next year for you. And they, get any, and they went, well, that's good, but well, who is it? I said, Coca-Cola. And they went... Oh, we don't. We. I tell you what. He said, if you can bring a, a big sponsor like that in, we're going to give you the team because we're not happy with Tom Walkinshaw Racing, uh, uh, who manages the the team in Australia. They're not getting the results. And I went, oh, oh. <laughs> would you like to to own the race team? And I went, uh, well, well, okay. <laughs> All this happened. Good God. And I went. Uh, Yes, and I went, oh, okay. Yeah, but you get the sponsorship. We'll deal with it at Holden. Um, the guy's name was McInary, I think his name was, one of the bosses of Holden. And, and I went, okay, so I'm running around trying to do this. And then Tom Walkinshaw hears about it that because John Crennan, who was the boss of uh, HR, HRT in Australia, heard about it and said that I was it was mutiny. I was trying to steal the team of him. Tom Walkinshaw came to Bathurst, pulled me into his room and was rousing on me and telling me to hand the money, the, the huge amount of money, over to him and him and, and send it to England. And if I did that, I could keep my drive with HRT. So I had to give him the millions of dollars in sponsorship. And I went, well, that doesn't sound right. So he said, and then you're going to ride next year. And I said, well, let me think about that one. And then, uh, and then I, I thought about it and then, I came back to Europe and then I rang him up and I said, oh, is Mr. Walkinshaw there? And they went, oh, he's busy. And I said, oh, okay. I said, it's Wayne Gardner. Uh, he's waiting on a response. And, uh, and I said, but tell Tom um, I'm not interested in his offer because what happened was I then, uh, to- I then said no and I was, I was going to take the sponsorship. And then Holden said, well, we're in trouble from Tom Walkinshaw uh, we can't give you the team now because now they're legally stopping that. So I said, 
oh, that's okay. I'll go and get another team. So I went and bought a smaller team and turned into a big team. So I brought a, I brought in a team called Neil Crompton was with, a guy from Bob Forbes, and I bought his little one-man car show team and turned it into 25 staff and four race cars and, and workshops, and, and I turned into that. And I had a sponsorship with Coca-Cola for three years, and which was, uh, well, actually more than that. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I was very lucky to fall into it and end up owning a, a touring car team in Australia. Wow. Wow, which then led to you going uh, to Japan yeah. and being victorious in the All Japan Championship, which is a hugely tight championship to to even get into, get onto the grid, That's right. win a race. I mean, my experience of cars in a previous life and dealing with Nissan, that's, that's not easy. That's right. Um, well, during all that uh, period, yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know about my race career so no. so much in depth, but. Um, then what happened was... You raced longer in cars than you did in bikes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, approximately about the same, yeah. But, but what happened was um, I was I had the Coca-Cola sponsorship and the touring car team in Australia, and, um, and then uh, there was the Olympic Games coming. It was up to 2000, so it must have been 97, 96, 97. So then at 2000, it was the Olympics. So then Hon- Coca-Cola had to pull the sponsorship and put it into the Olympics. So that put a strain on the team. So I decided, then, by then, I got offered a, a ride in the Toyota uh, in the Saad car um, in the GT Championship, a test, um, through a friend of mine from Elf. And I went over there and tested it, and I broke the record. And they went, wait, wow, that was amazing. Where are you going? I said, I'm going home. They went, no, 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 we want you to stay. We want a contract with you. So, oh, okay. So I was doing two championships at one point, touring cars in Australia and the GT championship for Toyota, for TRD. Right. And then um, and then, I, then the, the sponsorship dried up with Coca-Cola and the Olympics and everything else. So I then went to Japan and did that full time um, and I was just flying in, fly back and forth. And I took Coca-Cola sponsorship into Japan and then I talked to the head office there and they gave me a whole lot of money then to get involved in the GT cars in, in Japan. So I kept them as a small sponsor on there because I was racing for TRD as a factory driver. Mm. And then I went through a, two, a couple of teams and ended up driving for Tom's and I was with Tom's for three, three or four years uh, driving with quick guys and I won races. I won races in touring cars in Australia. Um, podiums, Bathurst victories, you know, I, I've done all that. And um, and then I also did that in Japan with sports cars. So, uh, and then I was driving for Tom's in the last year. My last year was 2002. And uh, Tachi was the owner of Tom's. He rings me up. He said, Wayne, son, it's time to go racing. You, you're coming back? And I went, and, but, and that was about in February um, 2003. And I said, Oh, no, because my kids were starting to grow up and that they want to me teach them bike riding and they were only little then. So I said, no, my kids want me to stay and play with them. And so, and I bought a farm so I could teach them how to ride bikes and um, had a farm down the coast and lived in Sydney. And so I I gave up the car racing then. then. So that's how it happened. Uh, You drove an F1 car in a test. They thought that, that well of you. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, two times, two times, three times. I drove an F one car. I drove an F one car around uh, Motegi Oval, 
wide open. Every, the, I did the whole track in the oval flat in a Lotus, wide open um, when I retired. So at the end of uh, 2092 when I retired, they gave me the chance to go over there and it's like a celebration day for you and you get to ride all the bikes that if you wished and you get to drive all the cars and they had an F1 car. I think it was a, it was a Lotus or might have been... Uh, it was a camel one, I think, or something like that. And it was an 87 a, car, 87 yeah. car. Yeah, that had a uh, Honda engine in the back of it. Yeah, and I got, uh, and they said, I'll oh, be careful. And it was freezing cold, and it's going, and I'm driving out of the pit, and they go, because it's cold tires. And I went, Oh, this is going to be scary. But once I got going and got some heat in the tires, my ambition was to try and do the whole thing without lifting on the throttle, flat the whole way to see if I could do it. And I did it. I did it, and the chaps are going like this and covering their eyes. Oh, wait, I'm too fast, too fast. Slow down, slow down. Um, but no, I didn't crash. And we, uh, so I drove one there, the F1 car. Then I drove in Adelaide. I did a display, excuse me, a couple of laps. Um, and, but I had an open face helmet um, at that time. And, yeah, when it was the Adelaide Grand Prix, uh, I did some a couple of laps then, and that was fun. And in fact, I was reasonably quick you know considering everyone went wow you know and then i uh then i drove oh then i was invited from that from that little go uh by lotus to go to snedderton uh yeah went to snedderton uh in england and i tested the car all day uh there and um yeah i was quick uh they had the rpm turned down you know like about a thousand rpm down just to protect it, but um, I went pretty fast, and Johnny Herb was there, and I was only about half a second off him, you know. So, um, yeah, Peter, the the owner, Collins, Peter Collins, that's it. Peter Collins was impressed, and he said, "Wow!" And then so he put me then in touch with Bernie Eccleston, and they and Bernie wanted me in Formula One, and he goes, um, "Wow!" He said, "I hear you're going pretty good. Um, it's impressive," and uh, and they would, he was, um, Lotus didn't have a seat for me because they already signed up their drivers, but they were really keen for me to be associated with them. So they, they sent them to Bernie, and I went to Bernie's office in London and sat down with him, and he said, so I hear you're pretty good in the car. And and uh, and I said, yeah, 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 it's all be a bit of fun. And he said, oh, I think it would be good for us to have you in Formula 1. But he said, you're going to have to bring money. So who have you got a sponsorship? I said, well, I don't know. And at that time, um, I didn't have Coca-Cola at that time, which was a shame. And I said, oh, look, I don't have any sponsors. He said, oh, it's going to cost several million, you know, to get in here. And and I said, oh, I don't have that money. And and, uh, and he said, oh, it's a shame. He said, because it could have been a lot of fun, you know. And he said, but it would have been hard to find a seat, but you never know. So... He was – I nearly got there, nearly got to Formula 1, but not quite. So uh, – well, but I got to drive yeah, him a few times. Yeah, I had fun. It was great. It's fun, mate. You had a good run, good run. Oh, yeah. uh, a lot of other people don't realise except me because, as you may know, I have a soft spot for the certain car that I'm about to mention. But you drove in the DTM with a Jägermeister M3. I did. That's just recently been restored. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't know that either, but you were oh. there. You were, in theory, on the grid with Chicotto as well. I did. Yes, I did. Um, I was friends with uh, Steve Soper uh, and Armin Hahn and um, um, the Jägermeister owners, uh, Eckhart, his name is, his first name. And um, he was a big fan of mine and they 
um, Jägermeister was a big sponsor, and uh, they come and asked me, would I like to go out and do a few races in these? I went, why not? So I uh, went and did that. Um, yeah, that was a tricky car to drive, but really good fun. I, I was quick. Um, and um, I didn't win any races because I was in the German Touring Car Championship, and uh, I was only, only just off the bike at that period. Um, I also did uh, another – I did some other racing. I raced in uh, the Porsche Cup race, you know, the, the Travelling World Cup. I did that one Carrera race. Carrera Cup, Super Cup. Super yep. Cup. I did that at uh, the Grand Prix in Melbourne. And my first time in it, and I finished third on the podium. Bloody hell. <laughs> third place. Third place. And amongst those guys, there's like a grid of 30 uh, very good riders – drivers, sorry – and I managed to get third around there. I was really happy. And they went, we, you're the best result ever for a newcomer. And I went, oh, really? That's it. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty proud. So you can see that the speed's there, you know. Mm, mm, mm. And, I, and, and I don't know why. I just have a, 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 good, a good feeling. In fact, maybe it's because when I was young, when I had, before I had my license, I used to go and be a rat and I would go up into all the soccer fields uh, I had a car before I got my license, and I wasn't allowed to drive it. When my mum and dad were out, I'd get in and take it, uh, take it around. And I used to go out to all the soccer fields, and when it's been raining, and just drifting the whole time around during the night with lights on and learning how to slide and everything. And I think a lot of the car feel uh, and balance has come from those <laughs> those uh, many soccer fields I tore up over many many years. <laughs> totally, totally. But was it? Ultimately, the coolest thing in your world when you drove the Le Mans 24 hours, something that Valentino is trying to do right now. Was that a big moment? Uh, yes. Um, I always thought it was a cool race. It's a bit like Bathurst, you know. Everyone wants to go to Bathurst. I've been on pole position at Bathurst. I've led the race. I should have won the race a couple of times. Um, my team, um, we should have won with our team uh, when we are leading it. Uh, an engine let go on us, etc., etc. So... The obvious thing is that, you know, GT in Japan and touring cars and touring cars in Germany uh, and Formula One cars, the, the, the feel's there. And then I thought it'd be so good to do some iconic race like, like Le Mans. And then my friend Didier Duradigas, um, he calls me and says, oh, um, uh, someone's come and asked me because he's a good driver as well, Didier. He does touring cars and he's, he's a very good driver. And he said, oh, hey, I've got an idea. A friend of mine, is it Philip Gash? Um, yeah. He's, he's got a sports car and um, open top level two or grade two or whatever they're called. And um, he said, um, you want to do, do Le Mans with me? And I went, well, that sounds like fun. He said, but we're going to have to pay. So I went, oh, okay, well, that's not good. Uh, you got to bring sponsorship. So I went and talked to Coca-Cola and uh, we ended up getting some – money off them for both of us and we both got in the car and but it was really, i'll tell you what is not it's the first time i've ever driven a race car in the night with no lights and no no you can't see nothing and it was really 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 scary because the Le Mans, the, the the prototype ones they're coming at you like 100 mile 100 mile an hour faster than you and you're going down the straight and you can't see nothing and these things miss you by millimeters and, and they're going so fast, it scares the shit out of you. You're like, I, my heart was, I, I was looking in the mirrors and I could, you can't see the straight because there's no lights and it's black and, and just said, 
And that was the most frightening thing I've ever done in my life was the first two nights out on the track with all the big prototypes, all the fast guys, you know. And I'm a novice essentially there um, because the bike track is the small track around Le Mans, not the big track, and I'd never been around there before. And the first time around there, I didn't even look at a map. I just followed it, followed other cars and went, Christ. where are we going? You know, so <laughs> it, it was a bit of an experience. But you know what? That's the only way to do it is jump in and go hard and just scare yourself because it's something that you'll remember forever. So anyway, we were going really good. We were up in the – when the race started and we got into the groove – we got up to about halfway through the race, and um, but gearbox broke and, th- and this broke and that broke and uh, everything broke on the car. It wasn't very well prepared, and um, but we were up in the first oh, six or six or seven cars uh, outright, and we were going really really well, uh, considering. And I thought we were going to get a great result, but unfortunately the car didn't make it. It ran out of gearbox. We ran out of brakes. We ran out of clutch. We ran out of everything. He didn't have any lights. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had lights then, but we they we started into the night time for sure. Uh, but I think they they said uh, they called me up. They said, "Oh no, they woke me up. I was asleep in the chair in the corner there." And they went, uh, "You can go home now." I went, "What happened?" Oh, the car's broken. It's parked down the down somewhere down on the straight. It's broken the gearbox or something like that, and I went, "Oh, I said that was that was fun, but a waste of money." But geez, it was good fun. So it was one of those things you bucket list you, that you have to do. So I'm very happy I did it, but I I don't think I'll rush out to do it again. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Okay, let's just come a little bit more up to date, shall we? When you first saw Casey Stoner, did you think there's a bit of me in him? Uh, yes. Um, look, Casey's been bred from a very, very, very young age to be, you know, a dogmatic and strong racer, uh, strong-minded. Um, but, yeah, no, I watched him. I was impressed by his talent, uh, very, very talented. Yeah, he, he shocked me some of his things that he did on the bike. He was extremely talented. And you can see that he's been riding a motorcycle since he's a baby, you know. So 
uh, I could see that. And that, that was kind of like the start of the new talent of young kids these days yeah, because I'd never seen anything that good at such a young age. So, and obviously a lot of people have taken note of that uh, and taken note of Casey's ability uh, and then they started breeding, breeding them younger and younger and younger and even now they're starting them now on pocket bikes at three years of age in Spain. So, uh, and that was one of the reasons I took my kids to Spain when they were reasonably young, but not as young as three. So, but yeah, it was the, it was the changing of the guard that was uh, watching Casey Stoner. So yeah, Casey's father did a good job <laughs> what he was trying to achieve. He hit it home well and truly. He was onto something there, breeding them, but that's so young, you know. But come on, stop being modest. You did rather a good job on your lad. He ended up as the Moto2 world champion. Um, was he always going to be the racer with you around? Uh, yeah, well, Did he have I, much choice? I, I didn't. <laughs> I when I seen that, I went, "Wow, I can see how breeding young talent works." And as I mentioned, it was the new breed. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't raise Remy and Luca to be racers. I waited until I started to see something that they're good at. You know, I kept an eye on them, and I remember putting putting Remy down a big slippery dip and we were living in Australia at that time, a big, a huge, those big steep slippery dips, you know, and, uh, and I was pretty scared doing it, but I got my wife down the bottom down there and, uh, and I said, catch him, you know, and see what happens. And, um, I mean, I, I didn't think he'd fall off cause it was just straight down this thing. It's got rails on the side. I slid him down there and she caught him and he's gone, more, 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 more. And I went, wow. I said, let's do that again. And I kept doing it. And the more and the more of a thrill, the more he loved it. And I went, wow. I said, and then I started to see Remy in particular. Both are very talented, but Remy in particular was very, very precise and very talented at everything that he did, anything. You know, it, it doesn't – riding – riding, you know, um, uh, monobikes with one wheel around everywhere and jumping and hopping. And, and, and so I knew I had a, two talented kids. I knew that. So um, as I say, the apple doesn't fall from the, far from the tree. Uh, but I didn't breed them for motorcycle riders. It was just they were sitting in the car one day in their baby seats and then a bike went by and Remy goes, what's that? And I went, uh, that's a motorcycle, you know, around the car. And I went. That's a motorcycle. Oh, 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 can I have one of those? And I went, and then Luca goes, yeah, me too, me too, you know what I'm saying? And I went, oh, that's done it, isn't it? Okay, <laughs> let me think about it. All right, you win. Let's get one. So I bought them, I bought them two quads initially, two little quads, and we were riding them around, and we lived in Manly at the time. And I was, there was nowhere to ride around there. It's just all you know, housing everywhere and and I got in the little parks and there were quiet little quads and uh, they were riding them around and then sometimes the police would come and I'd get in trouble and stop it, and, but it was all okay. And then um, uh, so I then had to go and join a club to, from, to ride there to get them into and they loved it. And then, uh, and then one day they go, well, we want a motorbike. We want to ride a motorbike. So I went, okay, so I went and bought them two little uh, 50cc Hondas and Remy and Luke were about seven and nine, I think, at that time. And uh, so I thought if I'm going to start teaching them, I have to go somewhere. So I bought a farm uh, down the coast. I bought a 150 acres farm down there. 
and um, started breeding cattle, and I had plenty of room to build racetracks. So, uh, and I bought a tractor and um, built a dam and everything else, and I was like in heaven. So I spent the next, uh, you know, five years with them, teaching them, and then I was mowing out tracks and building jumps and some no jumps and dirt track, and I kept changing it with the tractor that I had at the time. So uh, then they said, we want to, and then we want to race. I'm going, no, 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 no race, no race. And um, cut a long story short, Honda called me, Honda Australia, and said, oh, the motocross guys are coming to Wollongong, um, the event at the showground, and why don't you go and have a look? And they also got the Red Riders Club, little kids thing for 50 cc's. And I went, oh, really? I said, boys, would you like to go and do the motocross thing and quads? And they went, yeah. Uh, and so we went there and there were massive jumps for the adults to use them, but they just ride over them slowly. And, and Remy went out and won, and Luca finished about six. And um, Luca's two years younger than Remy, and uh, and he didn't crash. And Remy goes, "I want to race. I want to race motocross." I said, "No, no, no, no! Don't ride motocross." He said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I said, "Okay, all right, all right, all right." I said, "Stop. Let's just go out and try dirt track first on no jumps because jumps means you get hurt, you know." Yeah. And uh, they went, "Okay." So I gave them some speed up at Nepean Speedway. And they went, oh, oh, oh. And there were some people there watching. They said, oh, he should join our club. And I went, okay. So so, so we went and joined the motorbike club. And you're not going to believe this story. So we turned up at this motorbike club, St. Ives Minibike Club, and said, we want to join. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. Oh, here's your numbers. You put these on your bikes, kids' bikes. So Luca's bike, had a Q, he had a QR50. And they gave me number 88 to put on his bike. I was second in the world that year. And then and he said, this one's for your son, Remy, 87. And, and, you know, he's been racing with 87. That's where it began. Everybody thinks because I was world champion 87, that's why. But, no, the fact is it was his mini bike number. Um, it was given to him his very first time. So, so I didn't even notice that. And we're washing bikes for several months. And one day I went, Oh, yeah, that's a good number. That's a good year. I was world champion, lady, and I was second. Well, so it was kind of got stuck to them, you know. And, and now you're not going to believe this, Toby. Everything I do in life, number 87 pops up all the time. I, 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 do, I do property development now, you know, in some big scale stuff. And I've just built uh, uh, warehouses in Australia. And I went to the council and I tried to get 100. It's a big, big site, three hectares. And I went there to get as much as I could onto the site to make it pay for itself. And they came back and they said, oh, I'm not going to give you 100 because it's a bit over the, the flood zone or something. And I went, yeah. And they said, but oh, we'll give you 87 warehouses. And I went, wow, that's a good number. Okay, I'll take it. So, And that's, and that's how this 87 keeps coming back to me wherever I go. So it's a strange thing, but it keeps happening. Gate 87 at the airport, hotel room number 87, yep. hire car slot number 87. Yeah. Yep. It good. happens all the time. I don't know why. It just keeps coming up as 87. If I win something, it's 87. I go, there's someone, if the, if the bill costs, how much is the bill? 87 euros. Oh, again? You know, it's, it's like that. So anyway, so it's become a lucky number, yeah. Uh, very lucky, very successful. Uh, you rode Goodwood Revival with Barry Sheen. I mean, what yes. a time that was. Yes, I was very fortunate um, to ride with Barry. Uh, Barry been I, – I, I was GP riding at that – no, it's a bit before. I, I just finished my career and then Barry kept – he was at the touring car races doing commentary. 
And he said, when, when are you going to come and do Goodwood? I said, what's Goodwood? And he goes, oh, you ride classic bikes. He said, I love it. I said, I'm always winning there. And he said, why don't you come and join me? It's such a great event. He said, the uh, Lord March will look after you and they'll, I'm sure they'll buy your ticket and everything else. I went, why not? So he went and spoke to Lord March or the Duke now. And um, then I, I got invited over there and first I think I did the Festival Speed and then I did the Revival after that. So then I, I liked the Revival because it was racing and um, I continued to keep going over there and, and winning races, you know. So uh, even though I was retired or retired from car racing as well, I kind of took up that. And so I had a great time with Barry. Many, many, a lot of times we raced together. And, um, yeah, and I was very fortunate there to be with him and race against him in his very last race of his life, of his career and his life. So, um, and, um, yeah, that day I won one race and Barry won the other, but he beat me over the line by about, you know, about three millimetre, you know. So it was a it was a great, great, great result for him. He's the last ever race he won and uh, he kept saying, well, you let me win. I said, how can I let you win? I'm trying to pass you, you know. Uh, and Stephanie was there as well, and uh, yeah, it, we were all in tears for Barry because we knew he didn't have, have long to go. And in fact, I was racing cars. That's right, I was racing in Japan because he kept asking me to look for certain um, cancer, anti-cancer products uh, in a homeopathic style in Japan. Because he said, I heard they've got some very good product up there. Can you go and get them? So when I was in Tokyo or various places, I had to go around looking for for remedies, hopefully some remedy for his cancer, but. Unfortunately, there, there wasn't. What would you do if you had a magic wand to wave through the 2023 MotoGP paddock? What might you do? If I had a magic wand? Or what do you think when you're watching the races at the moment? What do you, oh, do you know what I'd do with that? I'd, I'd do that. Well, if I had a magic wand, I'd put Remy on a, on a Ducati for a start. Because <laughs> Remy's in superbikes now, and I believe he got a bit of a rough start with KTM when it wasn't a very good, very good bike. I know, first of all, I know... Remy's talented enough um, to win races in MotoGP. I know he is um, because look at Bezeki now, and Remy beat Bezeki all year in Moto2. So the evidence is there. Um, and so it's just a shame that he didn't land in the right place at the right time, and he probably didn't have quite the right manager behind him, managing him. Um, so that's sad. However, there's nothing I can do about that now. Remy's in superbikes, and I hope he does well. Uh, if I had a magic wand, um, I think I would probably get a – I think I would take all the wings and everything off the bikes. I think I'd bring them back to normal-looking bikes. I mean, they're looking more like a Formula 1 car every time we see them. And and I don't think it's making the racing any better um, because if you think back to the days when we were riding super bikes or the British racing and when you're coming around the corner and you're sideways off the turn and smoke coming off the tyre and uh, uh, people used to think that's so cool. Um, yes, they're sliding them now, but everything's electronically controlled. And then you've got, you know, anti-dives and you've got squ anti-squats and uh, uh, launch control and traction control and... I don't know, there's too many gizmos on the bike, if you ask me. And um, and I think we touched on it earlier. I think four-strokes are a whole lot easier to ride than two-strokes originally. Mm -hmm. 
And now they're, now they're adding more trickery to them, and I don't think it's necessary because people want to see the bikes a little bit loose and, and looking at the riders, um, and not how good their electronics are, but look how good a rider they are under a normal, you know, under a standard format. And I don't know why they can't do that. I mean, in a sense, it brings it back to a bit like super bikes, but with a little bit, you know, tricky equipment, that's all. But I think if they they could dumb down the electronics and dumb down all the the performance additives, launch control, um, anti-wheelie, all that stuff. I mean, personally, I like to see bikes wheeling around the mm. track and sideways off turns and, you know, you don't see that now, mm. you know. Mm. So it's, it, I, I think it's lost. I think it's lost some of its simplicity uh, and, and earthiness in it. And I'd like to see it to dumb it down a bit, you know. We, I, I, I don't see a point of having all these electronics. It doesn't make the racing better no, no. it just makes it all equal no. that's all it does and that's not what people want to see is there a bit of your heart crying as you see honda at the moment struggling in in motor gp no not really um purely because i could see this coming from a long time uh i've been saying because i know how honda works inside and i could see this problem coming um, I remember one of the story I was telling you about when they didn't know what was wrong with their bike. They actually didn't know. And I think that while Honda's been sleeping on their laurels and not upgrading the bikes every year and not trying to think a little bit more laterally in the rule book, Ducati and the Europeans have. And then they've got to jump on them now. You know, Aprilia, they're, they're, they're far more advanced on what the rule book is. And Honda sat on their laurels, oh, well, well, let's just change the valve caps this year or let's change the brake pads this year or we'll change the the number and the fairing this year. You know what I mean? They do minimal change. They just want to – I guess they're keeping costs down, but the manufacturers, the European manufacturers have, have thought around the rule book and it's their prerogative to do it, thought around the rule book and are squeezing more out of the bikes. I – I don't think it's for the better, but however, they're doing better than what Honda are doing, and Honda sit on their laurels. And the Japanese are very, um, oh, let's hurry up and wait. You know, they don't, they, they well, well, we'll get to that. That's next year. Well, we need it now. And I went through this. Oh, we need, we need to fix this now. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, we have to talk to all the personnel and the, and the 4,000 people or 50,000 people in at Honda to get a result, and that comes always 12 months later where the small manufacturers, like in Europe, can react overnight, can react overnight and change it, and, and away we go. So they've they've got a quicker response time because everything has to go back to Japan, it has to go through all the hierarchy and eventually spit the result out at the bottom, but by then one year or two years has gone by. So they're very slow to make things happen, and that's the problem. Now they've got themselves in in this uh, difficult spot, they're in a quantum mess now, you know. So uh, and then then all of a sudden they're throwing people and ideas and everything at it. My, my point, I think, about Honda, it's like a rudderless ship. It's going around in all sorts of directions and there's no, there's no rudder. There's no one there with a with the clear set of what we have to achieve here. There's no Aguma. That's, there's no Aguma. There's no Mr. Aguma. And they've got all these people that come in because Honda are good at changing personnel all the time at senior levels. 
they move them out and they change them around and to rotate all their staff. So there's nobody there that actually has a good grasp of what what to do or what we should be achieving or what we're looking for or what riders are the right riders or there's nobody there for that. I mean, they've just got not very good people working there at the moment that don't see the clear picture. It's such a shame. Such a shame. Yeah, yeah. it is. And I don't – can I tell you, I don't see Honda fixing their thing for a long time. Mm. Uh, not under the personal way that they're going. They're, they're, they've lost. They've got confused. But it's been coming from a long time ago, mm. can I tell you? Mm. A long time ago. But they gave you such good days. So, uh, you know, those three letters will always be the uh, the high and the mighty. You know, I, I always say to people, Honda even make a foot peg. And, and it's just the best foot peg that was ever made by human hand. There's something about it. It's an HRC foot peg. It is... You know, it is, oh, it is called on the right. CNC by HRC Holy Water. You know, it, it's it's another thing. It's another level. But it's oh. such a shame to see them so 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 much in trouble. Honda's quality control is phenomenal, and their products that they make is is. I, I'm a big fan of Hondas. I'm not. I don't dislike them, but they've lost mm. their way. That's the point I'm trying to say, mm. and it's sad for them. But I can see it happening, and I can see it's coming, and it's. I, and I don't know how they're going to dig their hole out of this. Everyone's throwing their two bobs worth. They're getting Calex to build chassis. They're getting this. They get that. Don't forget, they've had other people building chassis for a long time. For example, like Morawaki. Morawaki builds HRC chassis too and, and other things. So they're all in Japan work together. But generally, they don't like stepping out of Japan and getting other manufacturers to do things mm. for them. Not generally. But when they're getting this serious and they're getting Calex to come in and build chassis, you know – they don't know what to do, so they're looking for. They need they need a good manager over the whole project to to put it in the right perspective. And what's the first thing that we need to do? And what's the second thing? And what's the type of rider we need? What's the test rider we got? And I, you know, as good as Mark Marquez, he's a genius on a motorbike, and but you know he's uh, he's not a good test rider because he's so talented. He rides above anything. Anything is good or bad. He rides a, He can ride a shopping trolley fast around the supermarket. You know, he's he's in, he's incredible. So, but that's not a good that's not a good test rider. That's a bad test rider because he doesn't know what's good or bad. He just rides it to the limit uh, and more. And so we need a rider that's testing that is a good test rider. That come back and explain it in details, and they explain it to the engineers that go, oh, we need this now. You know what I mean? And give them a new direction. And I think that's missing out of the whole package. Hmm. Well, hopefully it'll come full circle, not only for Mark, but for HRC, because uh, no matter no matter who's at the top of the pile or whatever, there's always a little bit of HRC in a lot of people. There's something about them, as I, as I have said. As no, I have they'll said. be back. Uh, Wayne, I've, I've, I've done this podcast for three or four years now. I have to say this has been one of the most enjoyable 70 minutes or so I, I've had for a long time. To hear those stories that from you that I've looked at on the television that I've only read about you know I only started in the mid 90s I'm a bit younger than you um but obviously I've read my history I sat alongside oh, really you're younger than me <laughs> <laughs> I sat alongside <laughs> Dennis Noyes I sat alongside Julian for all those years who were there and they saw it so I've learned from them yeah. but to, to sit and hear it from you is uh, is nothing short of a pleasure so thank you so very much it's my pleasure, Toby. It's been fun, and um, let's do it again. I quite enjoyed it. I like having a chat here. It's very simple, and um, 
you know, the things I've done and seen in my life, uh, if I could only tell you some of them, you know, it's just there's, there's, there's so many crazy stuff, crazy life I've had. And you know what's really strange? It's still happening to me now. And I'm, I'm 63 years of age and it's not backing off. And I'm, I'm full of energy. I, 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 I'm not down the beach drinking beer like I started to. And since that day, I've, I've never stopped working because I love it. And I, I, I work is my hobby and it's my energy to get up every morning. I get up at six every day and I'm off doing stuff, you know. So, and I've got several projects happening at the moment. Um, I can't tell you some of them, but some, most of it is property, property development. So I'm busy doing that and enjoying life and enjoying, yeah, it's good to catch up. Wayne Gardner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Pleasure. And look forward to the next one. I've been waiting to ask Wayne about Agumasan for years, so for me it's so special to hear from people who were there in the thick of such an important part of Grand Prix motorcycle racing what it was really like. What I can tell you is that when we stopped recording, Wayne said, oh, well, there was this story and that story. So what we'll try and do is keep those stories together for another chat later during the off-season. But what's good is that some people who've stood back from the sport and are just well, just that, standing back. WG certainly isn't. He's still got his brain turning over and ready for the next business development race, even if it might not have flags on the side of the circuit and a chequered flag at the end of the race. He's living life well with a great place in the south of France, enjoying every minute. Fair dinkum. There will be more Toby Talks 2 podcasts here with the race with me, Toby Moody. In the meantime, wherever you are in the world, goodbye for now. The Athletic.